You have fallen into Event Horizon with John Michael Godier. Joining John today is Amir Siraj. Amir Siraj is a theoretical astrophysicist and concert pianist. He is currently pursuing his PhD at Princeton University's Department of Astrophysical Sciences. CNN called his work one of 10 extraordinary cosmic revelations in 2022, and he was the youngest scientist named to the Forbes 30 under 30 list in 2021. Recently named one of Astronomy Magazine's 25 Rising Stars, Siraj seeks to understand the solar system in the context of its cosmic environment through research topics including interstellar objects, asteroids and comets, planetary system formation and evolution, supernovae, black holes, dark matter, and the search for life in the universe. Amir Siraj, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me back, John. The idea that there may be planets in the solar system lurking far out that we do not yet know of. Entire planets, and in this case, Mars-sized objects, has been one of the more alluring areas of research in planetary science this, this decade. Now, there of course are the famous examples of the hypothesized Planet Nine and at least two others that I know of. But here, this is different You're, with your new paper, that this is hypothesizing a different sort of planet in the uh, distant outer solar system. Tell us about that. Absolutely. Yeah. So, as you mentioned, a very sort of popular route in the past decade has been interpreting the orbital elements of trans-Neptunian objects. These are objects that cross beyond the orbit of Neptune. And there seem to be some interesting possible patterns in terms of clustering of those orbital elements and we'll learn a lot more when the Vera Rubin Observatory comes online and we get data from LSST. But there's also a lot of debate about these posited patterns. So they could imply the existence of a planet in the outer solar system. They could also imply the existence of perhaps a belt of debris in the outer solar system. Or they could at the end of the day, perhaps amount to a statistical fluke. It's too early to tell. Now, in this recent paper of mine, I take a completely different approach because even if the patterns in the orbital elements end up being real, and even if the patterns in the orbital elements of trans-Neptunian objects end up being real, it's very difficult to explain the origin pathway for a 5 to 10 Earth mass planet in the outer solar system. It's, it's really hard to either scatter it out there from the inner solar system and then get it into the orbit that it needs to be on. And it's also really difficult to capture a planet of that mass from either you know stealing it directly from another solar system or capturing a free-floating planet. And the reason for that, I mean, there are a few reasons. One of them is that it needs to be at a low inclination, and that is quite unlikely for a random capture. But also more broadly, that these planets are rare when it comes to free-floating planets. Five to ten Earth-mass planets, there are not that many out there that are just floating and not bound to 
a star. But with my approach, I said, I want to focus on a potential real origin pathway for the capture of a planet and see what that predicts. So this is not looking at the outer solar system and and working backwards from there, but rather working forwards from microlensing statistics on the abundance of free-floating planets and dynamical simulations that have been done about the solar system in its birth cluster. And really saying, you know, this is a possible origin pathway. And what is the what do the data imply for the abundance of such planets? And so all in all, this was this work was a simple combination of two results. One is microlensing. So for years and years, scientists have been constraining the abundance of free-floating planets, planets not bound to any particular star, by observing their microlensing signatures and have been getting better and better. And in August, a team of scientists announced that they had measured the mass function. So the abundance as a function of mass down to very low mass planets, almost down to the mass of Mars. And they found that there are way more small planets than there are large planets. Makes sense. That is generally true in nature. But they actually put numbers on it. So, so this is really exciting, careful, detailed work. And, there, and there's a lot of follow-up measurements that will, that will confirm these numbers and bring the masses down even lower, including the Roman telescope, which is going to be a uh, microlensing workhorse. And then the second part are the dynamical simulations that have been done to study how do things get captured go from unbound orbits, you know, interstellar objects, if you like, to bound orbits to the sun. And right after the Batygin and Brown proposal for a possible ninth planet was was put out in, in 2016, different teams of scientists rushed to understand if it could possibly be of a captured origin. And so they simulated the birth cluster of the sun in great detail and asked as a function of abundance of free-floating planets, how likely is it that you would capture a planet? Now, for 5 to 10 Earth-mass planets, quite unlikely was the consensus. But in this new paper, I combine that work with these new microlensing results, which show that there should be a huge number of Mars-sized exoplanets, which are just floating in space, and what I found was really striking. What I found was that we should expect, based on current statistics, one or maybe even a few small terrestrial planets lurking out there in the outer solar system. And so now the question is, can we find them? Now, that uh, seems to me to be a fairly straightforward process with the uh, LSST, Fair Rubin Observatory, seeing first light, I believe, this coming year then that what you would do, you know, use to look for this is a all-sky survey telescope like that. But is it within the range of the telescope to see a Mars-sized object at great distance like that? Yeah, so you're right. LSST is definitely the, the tool that will be most powerful in this case. The issue is this kind of planet would be extremely faint, way fainter than the Batygin and Brown proposal. And to give you a sense, 
at the end of the 10-year survey, at the end of 10 years of LSST, the ten the the co-added point source detection limit is about 26.9 magnitudes. Now, what you would do on this, so I mean, we're looking for something extremely faint that is moving on the sky, albeit slowly moving on the sky. So you couldn't just take the 10-year co-added image and look for point of light. What you would have to do is you would have to guess the trajectory of the planet. And so you would guess every possible trajectory, basically line segments, throughout the 10-year co-added LSST image. And so this is called a blind shift and stack search because you what you do is you guess a trajectory, you put in the orbital elements, very important is the distance, which would be somewhere in the 400 AU to 700 AU range. And so that gives you a speed and then you change the direction. And then you take the frames and you stack them up so so that the planet, the hypothetical planet, would appear in the same place in that stack. So you move the images slightly so they should all stack up if it were following that trajectory that you guessed. And so you have to do this over the entire image. And of course, that brings your signal to noise down. You are not sensitive anymore to 26.9 magnitude because you're going to get some rate of false positives at that level because you're making billions of guesses. So, you know, something more realistic is, let's say, a penalty of one magnitude. So maybe you could see a planet down to 25.9 And what do our statistics say in terms of the likelihood of a planet being at that brightness currently? We think that there should be about one. (laughs) So current statistics imply about one planet discoverable at that magnitude limit, 25.9, which again, which would be achieved after the entire the depth to get there is the entire 10-year LCST survey and then a blind shift and stack algorithm running on top of that. But the important thing to note is that LSST only covers half the sky. So if there is one out there that could be detected at this limit, it may very well be in the northern sky. So I really hope that we get something similar in the northern sky, either... By you know physically moving the Vera Ribbon Observatory or uh, doing something to similar depth with the with the Subaru telescope or with another instrument, because you're able to find twice the number of small bodies in the outer solar system and you have twice the chance of finding a captured planet. Now this thing could be if it's a capture, it could be in a really really weird orbit, you know, way outside of the plane of the solar system, right? Right, right. Yeah, it it would likely be in a quite eccentric orbit, but probably not probably not extremely eccentric to give you a sense. You know, Parker et al 2017 showed that about 2/3 of captured objects should be on orbits with eccentricities less than about 0.6. So, but the inclination can be very weird, you know, there isn't a preference for the ecliptic plane like the <laughs> the other planets have. 
and of course it can be anywhere in its orbit. And so in my paper, I ran a Monte Carlo simulation drawing from these different orbital elements and you know also saying when we observe it is not a privileged time, so it can be anywhere in its orbit, and came up with the you know distribution of distances at present that way, or at any incident time that way, and similarly came up with the distribution of apparent magnitude as a function of distance and number as a function of magnitude that way. Is there any information preserved in the orbital characteristics of, let's say we find it, okay, say we find a Mars-sized object out there and we're able to constrain down its orbit, is there any information preserved there that would tell us the difference of whether it was a capture or if it was something that migrated from the inner solar system? Yeah, so I think the uh, key there is going to be the inclination of the planet, because if you migrate from the inner solar system, you would expect a fairly low inclination. And if you're captured, there's no preference for an inclination of zero. And so the inclination is more random. So I would say, you know, if you find something that's has an inclination of five degrees or 10 degrees, it's probably not captured. But if you find something at 60 degrees or 120 degrees, you know, that's, you know, very hard to produce via scattering. Now, I want to be clear here, because this is a possibility, almost out of science fiction, the idea of capturing an alien world from another star system entirely, and that we could go out there and study it, which would be probably be the most interesting object in the, <laughs> in the solar system, if, we, if it were of interstellar origin of some type. Now, the question is, is what mechanisms of capture can happen here? In other words, we're talking about something getting captured from the birth cluster, but also the sun and other stars passed very close to each other in the past, like Schultz's star and things like that. So is that a possible way that we could have captured a world as well, just by passing by a random star system? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's possible to actually have stars steal planets from wide orbits that are around other stars. It's also possible, you know, if we just look at the capture of free-floating planets, there are many possible routes to do so. As I was discussing the, the birth cluster, probably the most well-studied mechanism of capture is three-body interaction. You know, the stars are very close together, and so you have a star, another star, and the planet. So you could think of it as a restricted three-body interaction, and the configuration is just right in terms of position and velocity that the planet loses enough energy to become bound to the star. You can also have capture as a result of a birth cluster expanding because the total system is 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 relaxing. You can also have capture with planets, right? So if it was a really low mass planet and it happened to come close to Jupiter or another gas giant, that's another mechanism for capture. So so the, there there are a lot of different ways but I think the bottom line here is that n-body simulations, would, which capture all sorts of ways, at least for free-floating planets, not for st stealing uh, a planet from a wide orbit. Those simulations were also done, but this this looks, you know, this this was the the focus of my paper. That with current statistics, it seems like there may very well be a planet out there, and and so that's why. So so there's. Then the question of why is this exciting? There's two levels to it, I think. One is that, well, in a way, there are three levels. One is that 
you know, there could be a ninth planet in the solar system. And that, you know, that rewrites children's placemats. I mean, it, it, it speaks to our understanding of ourselves in the context of space and the universe in terms of understanding our home planetary system. And, you know, that's why people care deeply about Pluto. I mean, people are still talking about, you know, this classification in 2006 because people care about the solar system and the planets are deeply, we have personal connections to the planets. And so so that's one aspect of it. But a second aspect is that, unlike a lot of other proposals, this would be, as you mentioned, a captured exoplanet. So the nearest exoplanet is Proxima b, which, you know, Breakthrough Starshot has spent $100 million trying to figure out how to visit. But this one would be a thousand times closer and it would be bound to the sun. So in terms of trying to learn about the habitability of the galaxy writ large and understanding the habitability of the solar system in the context of the galaxy and the universe, I mean, studying a terrestrial exoplanet in our backyard would be a massive dream come true for science. And it gets us closer to figuring out the question of, of are we alone? And then thirdly, I think there's a sort of philosophical aspect to, to it as well, because this result was just a simple combination of work that had been done before that led to a, an extremely striking idea and a really thought-provoking outcome. And I, and I think it speaks to the idea that questioning and, you know, just questioning one's surroundings, using the tools of, of logic and, and reason is one of the most powerful ways to effect change in whatever field that you're in, whether you're in science, you're in the arts, you are in public policy, right? Just using what you know about the world and using logic and putting things together in unconventional ways can actually lead to really exciting discoveries about the world and about ourselves. An ideal situation, so a Mars-sized object has the potential to have a lot of radioactive decay going on in its core, keeping it warm, opening up the potential for an ice shell world, right? Right. And there <laughs> there could be space whales. <laughs> well, you know, I would I would love for there to be space whales. I <laughs> I wouldn't say I would put my money on it because you would need a lot of radiogenic decay to maintain a liquid ocean over four and a half giga years, but that would be awesome. I mean, that that would be truly unbelievable if we could explore an alien ocean. I mean, it doesn't get much cooler than that. Or even if it no longer exists and we do what we're doing in Mars, look for evidence of past life on it, where it was in its original system, maybe. I mean, it would have been probably pretty distantly orbiting from its parent star, but still it's red dwarf or something like that, that you could look for maybe a zone of habitability that this thing once had and no longer does. It's frozen solid, but it'd be great for the paleontologists. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I'll add that, you know, because so the probability of, of capturing a free floating planet is much, much higher in the solar birth cluster than it is in what we call the galactic field, you know, after the sun left the birth cluster, just our galactic neighborhood that we have today. And that has to do with two things. One is the velocity dispersion, so the 
typical speed of the other members of the population. And it also has to do with density, so how, how close we are to the nearest star. But what that means is that since such a planet or such planets, there may be a population of these things, Mercury and Mars-sized planets in the outer solar system, would come likely from similar stars to the sun. So in a way, they could be a window into an alternate reality for the solar system, like an alternate pathway keeping the initial conditions the same of the same kind of star born around the same time in the similar environment. Do you end up with something that looks like Mars or Mercury, or do you end up with something very different? And you know that would be an enormous, enormous wealth of, of information in terms of understanding the habitability of the universe. Oh, it'd be absolutely amazing. I mean, it's, it's like you said, you don't have to go to another star system if something like this exists and can be shown to be of uh, interstellar origin. The thing is, is that once you do that, it's very easy to tell. If you get a rock from that thing, I mean, the isotope ratios would be just nothing, <laughs> nothing close to what we see in the solar system. Right. And that would tell you. But I wonder if anybody could think of a way, say, again, hypothetically, we find something like this and, you know, 50 years from now we send a mission or starship or something like that that can reach out there. The question is, would we be able to infer what type of star it originally formed around? I mean, would there be anything that might give an indication of, of, you know, leave a mark of sorts if this thing formed around a red dwarf or, you know, something like that? Yeah, well, I I think there might be some ways to do so. I mean, I'm I'm not an expert in, in in that field, but I think depending on the types of samples that we were able to get on the planet and and the depth to which we were able to obtain them, combined with you know a lot of folks do models of the formation of exoplanets. So you, my my guess is that there might be some way to combine exoplanet formation models which take into account the star's metallicity and age, et cetera, plus the measurements in terms of what we find in terms of abundance ratios of the actual elements. Obviously, a terrestrial planet would have a differentiated or would likely have a differentiated crust. I'm hopeful that there would be some ways to combine the data with models that have already been made to infer the things that you're talking about, about the star's age and 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 type but my guess is that if it was captured i mean that that it would likely be from a very similar start to the sun another interesting option here is again if you find something like this and it's covered in craters and looks like a solar system planet like that that means it's carrying meteorites an entire sampling of meteorites from another star system. <laughs> yeah. So you you would have you would have a lot of geologic sampling from that that star system of origin just right there at your fingertips. You'd probably have to send somebody out there, you know, a manned mission, <laughs> which probably wouldn't be easy. <laughs> but yes, yes. But still, in the future, if if such a thing were found, I mean, that's going to be the science of two hundred years from now is exploring that thing, right? Exactly. No, no, that's exactly right, and. And, you know, it will also, because of the distance of such a planet, several, you know, if LSST is able to find it, it would be at somewhere between 400 and 700 astronomical units. Current uh, propulsion technology, you know, conventional propulsion technology, would that would take quite a while to get there. 
you know, it, it would be doable. It wouldn't be like going to the next star system, which is of order 100,000 years, but this would be maybe 80 years, something like that. However, there are so many advancements in propulsion. And, you know, even if you had a demo version of the Breakthrough Starshot system, I mean, to put this in context, the, the goal for Breakthrough Starshot is to get these, you know, tiny craft to be able to travel at 20% of the speed of light so we could reach the nearest star system in 20 years. If you could get that working, you know, just in the solar system, at that speed, you could get out to to the distances we're talking about in two weeks. I mean, in two weeks, you could <laughs> reach it. I mean, and the communication issues would be, I mean, the issue of, uh, of being able to communicate would be in a lot of ways resolved because it's, it's a lot closer. So there's a lot, not only is there a lot of exciting science that can be done when we hopefully find a planet like this, but I think there's, there are, also a lot of exciting developments in spaceflight and propulsion that will allow us to study these kinds of things. And then the last thing I'll add is, you know, while it will be extremely hard and take a ton of effort, both from from the perspective of observational astronomers, all the way to very gifted computer science who would optimize the blind shift and stack codes to reduce the magnitude penalty as much as possible. What would take all of that effort and LSST, it would be at the very edge of the detection limit for LSST. If we know where the planet is, you know, if LSST finds it, something like JWST or Hubble can follow up and look at the planet and learn a lot of things about it from afar. The reason that JWST or Hubble can't find the planet is because they have very narrow fields of view, but the planet would be visible to them. And, you know, we could get uh, photometry and spectra and, and a lot of very interesting information as soon as we know where the planet is or where we think it might be. Hence in the outer solar system, there is a mystery, a, a strange feature of the far outer solar system known as the Kuiper Cliff. And it's been floated before that it maybe a Mars-sized object might be shepherding this in some way. Do you agree with that? Do you think that would be a, a good starting point to start searching? Well, where I sort of stand on it is that in hopefully a year or so, we'll start getting a, a fire hose of data about the outer solar system. And, and I don't think a lot of people appreciate just how torrential that fire hose is going to be. My understanding is that it'll at least 10x the number of objects known in the outer solar system. And so our, our statistics will get way better. We'll be able to find, you know, if there is a Mars-sized planet at a closer distance, you know, that was perhaps scattered outward, if there is a Mars-sized distance at 100 or 200 AU, it would be, you know, quite bright as compared to the distances I'm talking about for a captured one. So you could hopefully find such a thing if it exists in the first few years of operation. But also the evidence for the Kuiper Cliff and the evidence the, the evidence for the Kuiper Cliff and the evidence for what lies beyond that and the evidence for orbital clustering will all improve dramatically. That's sort of where I am on it. And I'll add to that also is 
is that uh, what I'll add to that also is that discoveries in the outer solar system enabled by the Rubin Observatory could also point us in the direction of where this planet might be or these population, this population of planets where they might be. Because presumably you could also get captured Pluto-sized dwarf planets. And now while the while the mass function of free-floating planets has not been measured down to dwarf planets like Pluto, hopefully in the future it is, right? And if Pluto-sized dwarf planets vastly outnumber Mars-sized planets, then LSST much earlier on in, in, the, in, in the survey, we should be able to find Pluto-sized dwarf planets that were captured in the birth cluster. And then those can be sort of the crumbs that lead us to the Mars-sized planets. And so I'm really excited. I think it'll be an amazing decade for the planetary science community. It's amazing to me because, you know, when I was first getting into amateur astronomy as a teenager, right around about 1988, 89, the, uh, yeah, we thought of the outer solar system as just this big frozen wasteland full of comets that occasionally get perturbed and nothing else, you know, that we weren't really envisioning, you know, these Kuiper Belt objects and things like that that we subsequently discovered. But now, after the New Horizons passed by a Pluto, the outer solar system is every bit as interesting and dynamic as the inner solar system is. And it's just done a complete change. Although there was one case, I think his name was Richard Muller. He, he floated the idea that there was a red dwarf out there <laughs> that, oh, yeah. that kept sending hails. But that you know obviously didn't pan out. <laughs> but um, my question for you, my last question is this. One of the more out there wild possibilities is the idea of not a planet out there, but a primordial black hole. What do you think about that hypothesis? Yeah, so, I mean, this is obviously a fun idea. I mean, I don't consider it as particularly likely, uh, but I, I did do some work on on the idea that there, of what if a primordial black hole was out there in the outer solar system back in 2020 with Avi Loeb. And basically... The whole idea behind this was Batygin and Brown proposed that observed orbital clustering and the outer solar system implied some source, you know, something with mass in the outer solar system that could potentially be shepherding these trans-Neptunian objects. Now, that could be a planet. Um, it could be a belt of, of, of planetesimals. All the evidence could be a statistical fluke, but let's let's for a moment say it ends up being real. It, it could basically be anything that has mass. And so one possibility is that it could be a black hole. I mean, it, it's a crazy idea because we don't know of any black holes with a mass less than that of a star, but it is a possibility. And it's a tantalizing one too, because, you know, even though the likelihood is, I would say extremely low. The payoff is <laughs> extremely high. If there just happens to be a black hole orbiting the sun, uh, you could test all, all sorts of uh, physical theories and do crazy, crazy science. So there was this idea was, was, was floated in a paper. What if it was a primordial black hole? Ed Whitten wrote a paper 
saying, you know, if if we don't if telescopes don't find the planet that Batigan and Brown proposed, that you know it might be a good idea to send tiny spacecraft to the outer solar system to see if they feel any disturbances and gravitational potential that that might imply the existence of a primordial black hole out there because such a black hole you know five to ten earth mass black hole would be the size of a grapefruit so it'd be you know i think the motivation there is you know it'd be extremely hard to find so maybe we should send a lot of crafts just to check and this you know this got a lot of press the the issue is that that would be extremely costly right that would probably be you know, a billion dollar space mission, something like that, if not more. And so, and so I was thinking about this proposal, you know, it was kind of a fun, very unlikely possibility, but fun. And I was just thinking, you know, is there any other way, I mean, that we could know whether or not there is a five to 10 earth mass black hole in the outer solar system, in the outer solar system, other than sending tons of tiny spacecraft out there? And what I realized, you know, I was, I was kind of, this was kind of like a a thought in the back of my mind for a good week or so during, uh, you know, in, in 2020. And then it hit me that for such a small black hole, whenever it would, you know, accrete the odd comet or, you know, small piece of debris out there in the outer solar system, given the model of accretion, for such a black hole, it would likely fall in the optical. So I ended up doing the calculations and I figured out that if there is a 5 to 10 Earth mass black hole in the outer solar system, LSST can actually find it. We need to we don't need to spend a single dollar extra because the data from LSST will tell us if there is a black hole hiding out there since it could it should undergo flares in the optical when it eats comets and other debris in the outer solar system so i i, I thought this was a, a fun exercise uh it, it saved a, a very extremely hypothetical billion dollars and it was a lot of fun but do i think it's a primordial black hole probably not but it would be cool definitely would be cool to have a picture of a primordial black hole, 10 earth mass black hole, accreting something, anything. (laughs) We could even play with it. We'd go out there and and make it accrete stuff. Oh, yeah. You You could throw things into it. Yeah, and and test all kinds of physics with it. Well, no matter what, whatever we find in the outer solar system at this point on is going to be really interesting. And I'm looking forward to it. It's probably, as you said, the fire hose is going to turn on, which means I'm going to have a whole lot of interviews to do. Yes, you are, John. (laughs) Yes, you are. All right, Amir, I look forward to the next paper and we'll get together again. And good luck. Thanks for having me, John. Appreciate it.